If you have lost your place in the 73rd Psalm, please regain it. We're going to look at this in some detail together today. When I was a student in seminary, one of the professors told the student body about an incident in his classroom. He was teaching on the subject of doubt, and after the lecture concluded, one of the students came to him and said, Dr. Summers, I've never had a doubt. Dr. Summers responded by saying, have you ever had a thought? (laughs) The reality is, thinking people typically have doubts. And it's no wonder, because the God of this world, Satan, is one who is described by Jesus this way. He is, that is, Satan is the father of lies. We see it from the beginning. In the Garden of Eden, when he came to Eve to tempt Eve and Adam, he approached her and called God's Word and integrity into question. He, in effect, manipulated her and lied to her and set the trap that she took the bait that was in the trap. It was her sin. Satan didn't make her do it. She did it. But we know that the devil comes and he insinuates things to us. He plants seeds of doubts in our thoughts, in our minds. Are you in doubt today? Are you one who dwells in doubt? Do you doubt the goodness of God? Do you doubt His fairness to you personally? Do you wonder if He has the power that the Bible says He has? Because if He did have such power, and He did really care about you, then He would have delivered you from the situation that you find unbearable in your life. Well, if you are in doubt, I believe this message is for you. This psalm is the classic statement on how to deal with doubt. The man who penned it was a man named Asaph. Asaph was no ordinary person in the life of Israel. It was he who was given the assignment by King David in preparation for the building of the temple that Asaph would be the one who arranged the music. He was the director of musical worship. He was of the tribe of Levi. He was in his own right, quite a musician. We have 12 psalms, including this one, which we're studying today, which he wrote. He arranged and put to music, by order of King David, some of King David's psalms. He was quite a leader, and I might add, a good leader. But he suffered from doubt. There is nothing incompatible with being a person who seeks the Lord, and at the same time, having doubt. When the apostles reached the place which had been pre-assigned for them to meet with Jesus before He ascended into heaven, the Scripture says, when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, and then something rather startling follows, and some doubted. These were the men who were most close to Jesus. This was the group who had hosted Jesus more than any other group of people in between the resurrection and the impending ascension of Christ to the right hand of the throne of God. 
Yet they still had some doubts. Among them was Thomas, who said, I won't believe until I've touched the wounds in his side. He saw Christ. He put his hand into the wound in Jesus' side. And he said, my Lord and my God. He declared his belief in the deity of Christ in that moment, the risen Christ. If in doubt, the first thing we need to remember is that where we were at that moment when we departed from faith. If in doubt, remind yourself why you were there. Here's the answer to that question. You are in doubt because you find you did not have the proper focus. You were focused in large part on others probably like Asaph. And we see in this particular passage of Scripture beginning with verse 1, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant. He was putting his eyes on the proud, as he says here, when he says he was envious of the arrogant. Look at verse 6. He says, therefore, pride is their necklace. And he's envious of these people. Look at verses 8 and 9. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. The ESV says struts through the earth. They have the audacity to look down, as it were, on God Himself and call God into question in their lives. And they seem to be getting by with it. This is what really made Asaph doubt. He looks at these people who are opposed to God and they seem to have it made in their lives. Look at verse 11. They say, how does God know? And is their knowledge with the Most High? They had the gall to go and say, God is not really who He says He is. They were focused on people who were proud. In the case of Asaph, he was also focusing on the people who are prosperous. The two usually went hand in glove, but not always. Look at what he says in verse 3, the second part. I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Before I forget it, let me make this observation. When you look at people who are more prosperous than you, who have achieved more power than you, have a higher position than you do, and at times you feel, find yourself wondering why God would let that happen when they mock God and they look down on everybody else around them, you wonder why. And you even may come to the place that you envy them, like Asaph admits to doing in some way or another. Please understand that you and I have only the tip of the iceberg of information about anybody. We don't really know what goes on inside the minds and hearts of the proud and the prosperous. We only see the exterior of their lives and very little of that. So, you may find yourself in doubt because you have 
focused on other people. But also, and this is probably more the case with us, we are focused on ourselves. Let's look at verses 13 and 14. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. Do you sense the pain that Asaph is experiencing here? He had really given his all to the Lord. And he must have been suffering something other than just envy. Because he's ready to throw up his hands and no longer follow. Remember, he says, my feet had almost slipped. Verse 14, I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Now, here's what he does. He compares himself to these well-to-do people, people of position and power. And he's looking at them, and it seems like they're getting away with murder. They're getting to do whatever they want to do without answering to God at all. God seems to have turned his eyes away from them, and he's not aware of what's going on. That's what's going on in Asaph's mind. Maybe you felt that way about other people in your life who are not following the Lord, while at the same time you are seeking to have a pure heart in following the Lord. When I read these words in verses 13 and 14, I see that Asaph experiences the disciplinary action of God in his life. That's what he says in verse 14. I'm chastened every morning. God disciplines me, is what he's saying. Well, sure, Asaph must have known what Job had written when Job wrote about how it is the way of a good father to discipline his child. And God, as our Heavenly Father, does discipline us. He knew that. But he wondered why God wasn't responding to the wickedness represented in those people that he was envious of, the proud, the pretentious, and the prosperous people around him. This recalls, in my own mind, what Elihu said about Job. Job had been lectured by his three close friends. The young man, Elihu, had listened and finally said, I can't keep silent any longer. And so he spoke to Job in the presence of the friends. And this is what he said, Job, you are at odds with God because you have said it profits me nothing to serve the Lord. That uncovered the problem of Job internally. His problem was that as long as things had gone well, and they had gone remarkably well for a very long time, he was prosperous, he had a wonderful family, probably many grandchildren by this time because the children were adults. Many of them had their own places of dwelling separate from his, and they would gather there and have family reunions periodically. They were growing, and so was the fortune of this man, Job. And all of a sudden, everything unraveled. And consequently, Job was struggling trying to figure out what was going on. And he came to the place where he said, I have been doing things for you, God, and you have quit doing things for me. Now, I don't want to 
rattle anybody's cage or rock your boat too much. But God is not here for you. Nor am I one for whom God does bidding. God is not our servant. We have it backwards. We are His children. And by virtue of our being His children, we have incredible support from Him. Beyond our imagination, He loves us perfectly. But we must understand that not only are we His sons and daughters, we are also His servants. And we have been bought with a price. That's what the Bible says about us who know Jesus. What was that price, by the way? The precious blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son in order that if we believe in Him, we might have forgiveness and eternal life. And we have been bought with the price of the blood of Jesus Christ. And we are not our own. To whom do we belong then? We are owned by God. We are His servants. How frequently do we hear David, for instance, describe himself as the servant of God, or Moses as the servant of God. We are servants of the living God. He is not a heavenly bellhop bound to do what we would want him to do. Many of us have fretted, some of you are fretting today, because of an unresolved situation in your life. And you've prayed 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 and doubt has crept into your heart and mind. Understand that the beginning point from being in doubt, going back to a place of solid faith in the Lord, is to first of all remind yourself why you are where you are. It's because you've lost your focus. you put your focus on the wrong things. Arthur Ashe is a name that perhaps means something to you. One of the greatest professional tennis players of all time. He was the first African-American to make the very coveted Davis Cup team to play tennis against the other nations of the world as a team. He won the Wimbledon Championship in London. He won the Australian Open Championship. He also won the U.S. Open Championship. He's in the Hall of Fame. In his 30s, he began to suffer heart trouble. It was discovered that he had blockage in three of his arteries. He went under the knife. It seemed that he was repaired from the surgery. He took a trip to recover. On the trip, he began to have similar pains, which had warned him of the condition to begin with. He made haste back to New York City, where he had had the surgery. His doctors consulted. They looked at the tests which they ran. They said, we have to go back in and correct what we did because it's not working. They went back in. They corrected it. He did well. He was given a clean bill of health. The problems which he had had after the first surgery had disappeared. But it was not long before he began to have problems that did not seem to be associated with the heart. And he was diagnosed as being HIV positive. As it turned out, the blood transfusion which he had received had been tainted by the HIV virus. He kept it quiet until 
word leaked, leaked out, and the USA Today newspaper was going to run a story on it. And he said, I'm not going to have somebody else tell my story. So he called a press conference in New York City where he lived. And he said, to begin the conference, he said, I have AIDS. It shocked the reporters, and it shocked the world. Such a great man, ravaged by this illness. It was a death sentence for him. The first question that was asked of him, Arthur, have you asked why me? And he said without skipping a beat, no. I didn't ask why me when I won at Wimbledon. I did not ask why me when I won the U.S. Open. I did not ask why me when I won the Australian Open. Amazing. Now, something that was not reported but is fact, based on the testimony of two very credible friends of his, Bob Briner, a name that would not mean much to anybody but me probably, because I've read books which he's written, but also Stan Smith. Some of you who are aficionados of tennis will know that name. He was a contemporary of Arthur Ashe's, and they competed against each other. They became friends as they traveled the world, and they would hang out with each other when they were away from their home cities, and they became even closer friends. Arthur Ashe was raised in a Christian home, but he was only nominally Christian. But as he watched Stan Smith, who had just recently made a commitment to Jesus Christ, he said he was so impressed by the consistency of character in his life. He said when he would win a tournament or lose a tournament, win a match or lose a match, he did not change in his demeanor. And it made an indelible impression upon Arthur Ashe. They began to talk about why he was able to do what he was able to do in the face of difficulties like that. And Stan Smith told him about his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gave his life to Christ. Later, when it was discovered that he had this death sentence of AIDS, he called Bob Briner, a man who was old enough to be his father. Arthur's father died as a young man, as did Arthur, from heart trouble. But Briner tells the story of how he asked Stan Smith and him to come to New York City and just pour the Word of God into him, train him, disciple him. They prayed together, and he said, please pray for me. So the background of Arthur Ashes being able to say what he said when he was asked the question, which he was asked, have you asked why me, is the fact that he trusted Christ. He knew Jesus, and Jesus empowered him in that situation. Well, let's move on. If in doubt... Make your way to the place of worship. This is a very simple diagnosis of what we need to do when we're in doubt. Two simple things. What? First of all, we are to remind ourselves of where we were and get back there. That's what we need to do. Get away from where we are and go back there. Back there is the worship of God. Look at verses 15 and following. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Now, there was no temple probably when he wrote this. 
the temple was conceived, but it probably had not yet been built. The sanctuary would have been in the tabernacle. The tabernacle had the Holy of Holies in it, just like the temple would have the Holy of Holies. And the sanctuary was the place of the presence of God. And the Holy of Holies, over the mercy seat, was where God's presence was most prominent. And he went to the sanctuary. It was his responsibility to be there. It's a blessing to have responsibility to be in the place of God, by the way. You and I have responsibility. The Bible says, do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another as long as we are in this world, and especially as we see the day approaching. That would be the day of the second coming of Christ. So, listen, we are gathered here together. We don't have a sanctuary like they had. I mean, some people call this a sanctuary. It's a building. It's a nice building, isn't it? We're blessed to have a comfortable place to come and worship the Lord together. However, we're going to empty this building out in about 15 or 20 minutes. And when it empties out and there are no people in here, this is not the church, is it? It's not. The church is made up of the people. And in 1 Corinthians 3.16, this is what God says to us. He says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? He's talking about all of us. He was talking to the Corinthians in plurality. He's talking to us today. We are the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. So when we gather together, the good news is Jesus is here. Why? Because He says, wherever two or three have gathered together in My name, there I am in the midst of them. David says in Psalm 122, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Here's the man after God's own heart. And people come, hey, David, come. Go with us. We want to go to the place of worship. We want to go to the sanctuary. We want to go together. And it's let us. It's congregational worship. Is Thank God for the possibility of congregational worship. Asaph was well acquainted with it. That's how he made his living. Not many of us make our living doing what we do in the worship experience. But he did. He had to go to fulfill his duty. Thank God for the duty that he gave to him. And in this passage of Scripture, when he gets to the sanctuary, it's the place not only where God is present, but listen carefully. In God's presence, and only in God's presence, is there clarity. Clarity about others. Look at verse 17, the second part. Then I perceive their end. Who's he referring to? He's referring to the proud and the prosperous, the healthy and the wealthy. He's looking and he's looking at them, but he perceives their end. It's in the presence of God that we get proper perspective on everything, including people that he speaks of here. Look at verse 18. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors like a dream when one awakes. Oh, Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. William Randolph Hearst was in the early 19th century the leading journalist, and he was a yellow journalist. He was a sensationalist. Actually, he was sort of the one who paved the way for the National Enquirer. 
because it was that kind of journalism. He was looking for something racy to report to really stimulate people's bad side and to get them hooked on his papers, one in San Francisco and then one in New York City eventually. Well, this man built a castle. I've been to it. Many of you probably have too in California. It's called the Hearst Castle. It took from 1919 to 1947 to finish this castle. It's impressive. He would invite friends to come. He had one stipulation. One stipulation. You can do whatever you want to in the castle. But the one thing I forbid you're doing, and if I know you do it, you'll be asked to leave immediately, is to use the word death. In Asaph's experience in the worship of the Lord in the sanctuary, he thought about, it was brought to his mind, of the sudden terrors of people who die. How difficult it is. Joseph Stalin, one of the real monsters of history, died of a stroke. His daughter, Svetlana Aleluyeva, was there. His only daughter, his youngest child she was, and she watched him die. She later became a Christian. She came to the United States. Her Americanized name was Lana Peters. She buried a Mr. Peters. And this is what she said in her memoir about the death of her father. She said he died the most horrible death. This man who had great pride, great position, great prestige, he had it all. He ruled a big portion of the world. But at the end of his life, he found himself at the place everybody finds himself or herself absent of God in a difficult situation. So, clarity about other people is found only in God's presence. Clarity about ourselves. He had a clear moment. He was not confused anymore. Look at what he says about himself in verse 21. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within. Against whom was he embittered? It was against God, because God didn't come through for him. Then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. In other words, he didn't get it in that moment of focusing on other people and focusing on himself instead of focusing on God. But God brought him back. To where he needed to be. He centered him in the place of worship. And not simply in the public place of worship. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, What do you not know that your body individually is a temple of the Holy Spirit and He is in you? Therefore glorify God in your body. We worship privately. We are to worship privately. And read the Word of God. Pray. Praise God. We are to be in a position in our hearts and minds to worship throughout the day as we walk with the Lord. He had clarification of who he was. That's good, isn't it? And then of God. This is the most important part as we come to near the end of the message. Look at these things that he learns or remembers at least about God. Look at verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. God speaking here, I am continually with you. Now, look at what he says in verse 28. I'm talking about Asaph now. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. 
I am continually with you. How frequently is God with us? All the time. And what is Asaph's take on that? His take is, the nearness of God is my good. In other words, the greatest gift I have is God's nearness. This is what Paul says in that great passage in Philippians 4. I wish we had time to explore it in detail. But suffice it to say, he says, the Lord is near. Don't ever take the nearness of God for granted. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. I, the Lord, do not change. Is what God says. And we move away from God just like Asaph did. We're distracted. We're led to doubt by the thoughts that the devil implants and the insinuations of the devil and how the devil mocks God and mocks us for believing in God brings doubt to our minds regarding the trustworthiness of God and His Word. But... The nearness of God. This is huge for us. What a blessing that He's continually with us. Verse 23, You have taken hold of my right hand with your counsel. You will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Do you feel lost sometimes? Well, the good news is, if you know the Lord, He has taken you by His hand. And His Word is a lamp unto your feet, a light unto your path. His Spirit will guide you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. In all your ways acknowledge Him. He will make your path straight. He desires to make our path straight. He takes us by the hand. Praise God for that. Look at verse 25. This is really the centerpiece of the whole passage. Whom have I in heaven but you, and besides you I desire nothing on earth. We sang a song in the first worship service, and it talks about... It's, from, it's a Revelation song taken right out of the book of Revelation. It talks about Jesus being the King of kings. You are my everything is one of the lines. That's really what Asaph is saying. You are my everything, Lord. And when you are my everything, the result of that is I understand what's going on. And I'm not in any way perturbed. I'm not disturbed. I'm going to trust in you because you're utterly trustworthy. I'm going to follow you and I'm going to let you take care of me. Because you are indeed my God. You are my Father. Thank you, Lord. This should be something we should aspire to in our walk with God. Verse 26, My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 27 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Whom shall I dread? We have one who is for us, who is the God of the universe, He's for us. He's not against us. We just got to take our hands off. We try to control and manipulate everything. The Bible says, be still and know that I'm God. As long as we're fretting and fuming, we're not going to know God. We're going to know about Him, but we really won't know Him as personally as we otherwise would know Him. My portion forever. Now remember... What tribe, you may not remember this, but what tribe was Asaph from of the twelve tribes of Israel? Levi. If you've just been reading the book of Joshua, if you're doing the map journal, some of you have been doing that, it's really difficult to read those last eight or ten chapters. Why? Because it's describing the division of the land and all the details. It's really tough reading. 
But you read something about Levi. Levi got no land except for some pasture land around certain cities. Not much at all, comparatively speaking. But what was the portion of Levi? The Lord? Now, you may say, but Mike, I'm not a member of the tribe of Levi. I'm a Gentile. I'm not a member of any tribe. Well, please remember that the true Jew is one who is circumcised in heart, whether you're Jewish descent or you're Gentile. We who know Jesus, our hearts have been circumcised. We are true Jews. We're part of the commonwealth of Israel is what Paul teaches in Ephesians chapter 2. Read it. If that were not enough, the Bible says in 1 Peter 2, 9, that we are a royal priesthood. You and I are in the priesthood. What is our portion? Who is our inheritance? It's the Lord Jesus, amazing, who indwells us. Amazing. Let's read a little further. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. We've already talked about that. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell all your works. What is the end game for Asaph? The end game is he's gone through all this difficulty. He's doubted God. He almost slipped. And then the Spirit of God brought him back to ground zero where he needed to be. And what was that? In the place of worship with his eyes fixed on the Lord, focused on the Lord, not on everything that's going on around him, not on things which are going on internally, but to fix your eyes on Jesus is our calling, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. This is a message for us. The nearness of God is just as surely our good as it was Asaph's good. And just as surely ours as it was the Apostle Paul and the Philippians. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. God became man in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus became the only sacrifice who could pay for our sins. He paid the price. He died. He shed His blood so that He could be raised again. And in His resurrection and His crucifixion, the work of Christ culminated for the salvation of mankind so that we have a relationship with God through the God-man, Jesus Christ Himself. When everything is said and done, we are people created for God's pleasure. And God's pleasure is that we worship Him. One last word from the Scriptures. It's part of a verse in the book of Jude, verse 22. It simply says, Have mercy on those who doubt. You may be here and you're doubting today. We want to have mercy on you. We who have doubted, and just because we doubted once doesn't mean we won't again, right? Because there's so many godly examples of people who had deep faith, then they doubted, but they were brought back because they came back to worship. The invitation of the Lord to you today is, come back to the Lord. 
in terms of focusing on Him. Don't let the devil deceive you into branching out and focusing on any number of things other than the person of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the day that You've given us to worship You. We thank You for the Gospel. We pray, Lord, that we would take these truths regarding doubting and use them as a compass whenever we find ourselves in such a position. Thank You, Lord, for being our Father. Thank You for being our Master. We want to be good sons and daughters and good servants of Yours. Please, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.